0: Hello, and welcome to Noise in the Groove, the origin of sound recording. My name is Ramzi Janini, and this is episode 13, Blavatsky and the Etheric Planes. Early in the morning of the 15th of April of 1912, the largest ship afloat in the world struck an iceberg and sank on its maiden voyage. As you may have already guessed, that ship was the RMS Titanic. Around 1,500 people tragically lost their lives that day, and one of the most famous of those was an English journalist named William Thomas Stead. Within a few years of his death, a memorial plaque to his memory was erected on the embankment in London, as might be expected, but also in Central Park in New York, which goes to show something of the international reputation and esteem in which he was held in his time. That reputation was founded on his role in the development of a new type of journalism called New Journalism, which sought to influence both public opinion and government policy through the power of the pen, or printing press at least. His approach to journalism would eventually lead to tabloid journalism as we know it. Had he lived to see what would become of tabloid journalism, he might not be all that keen to associate himself with it. For his part, though he was a savvy businessman, His driving aim was to use the power of the press for his sense of good. Perhaps most famously, a series of articles he published was so influential in raising the age of consent in Britain from 13 to 16 that the new law became known as the Stead Act. The series was called The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon, and it sensationally detailed undercover efforts in the east end of London that proved the ease with which a man could buy a child prostitute. He also told all, so to speak, about the networks of people profiting off the young girls, including so-called doctors who would guarantee virginity. It was a story that sent shockwaves throughout the public, and it was one of many such stories in his career. Later on, he would move to Chicago for half a year to write a series about the depravity in the brothels and bars in Chicago called If Christ Came to Chicago, which goes a long way to explaining his fame in the U.S., perhaps. So, what does all this have to do with our story? Well, like Arthur Conan Doyle and many other famous and respectable men of his time, Stead was a spiritualist. But unlike many, he wasn't just a believer in the ideas of spiritualism. He claimed to have become a medium himself, announcing in 1892 that he was receiving automatic messages from a recently deceased journalist called Julia Ames. In 1907, inspired by his spirit contact, he established a project called Julia's Bureau, which employed female mediums to root calls between the living and the recently deceased. He wrote of it, On April 24th, I opened a bureau in London for the purpose of attempting to bridge the abyss between the two worlds. It is established in my old office at Mowbray House, Norfolk Street, London, and is under the direct control of the friend on the other side who, for the last 15 years, has been urging me to allow her the opportunity of making good her words. If W.T. Stead had been reaping in massive profits from the project, it would be easy to be cynical about the affair, and see it as an attempt to profit off the emotionally vulnerable. But actually, it was largely self-funded at quite substantial personal costs. He, like many others, seems to have believed deeply in the ideas of spiritualism. And while it's true that in his time his fervent beliefs did lead some to lose respect for him, they certainly didn't stop him from becoming one of the most successful and influential journalists of the era. For Stead, like many spiritualists, technological and spiritual developments were deeply connected. His Julia's Bureau project shows that principle in action, with the telephone switchboard being both the means and the metaphor for communication with the dead. Earlier, in 1893, he published the first issue of a magazine called Borderland, which was a publication dedicated to spiritualism, In an introductory article, Sted wrote, It would be as rational to suppose that a man ceases to exist when he rings off the telephone through which he has been speaking, as to suppose that life, as we are now discovering it, terminates when it lays aside the bifurcated telephone which we call the bod. In that sentence, Sted equated the body to a telephone, and conscious life to the electrical signals passing through telephone lines. An 1893 article in The Two Worlds also used a telephonic metaphor to explain why the inane content of many reported communications from beyond the grave, such as raps and table-turning, should not obscure the significance of being able to communicate with the spirits in the first place. If voices speak and claim to be those of excarnate human beings, if messages are given which demonstrate the existence of an intelligent operator at the other end of the line, then these despised and rejected phenomena supply the world with proof palpable of continued conscious existence. Such examples reveal ways in which the idea of the telephone, with its capacity to connect voices across vast distances, replaced a telegraph as a leading metaphor regarding communications with spirits. Sound recording, in this respect, was not nearly as immediately relevant to the idea of the seance. The point of a seance, after all, was not to prove that the departed had once existed, but rather to show that they were still, in some sense, being. Following this trajectory, the wireless structure of radio communication would eventually supersede even the telephone to become the metaphor par excellence for understanding contact with the dead. The idea of radio as a technology exploiting an underlying structure of reality that simply needed to be discovered rather than invented paralleled the newfound abilities of mediums to tune into the spirit communications that had always existed in the minds of believers within etheric planes. The concept of ether was hugely important to spiritualism, as it was the leading theory of what spirits and the afterlife were composed of. Like many spiritualist ideas, it had its origins in theoretical science where it was first postulated as an intangible yet present medium, necessary to explain how light waves could travel through the apparent vacuum of space. In other words, light was understood as a wave, but waves could only travel through a medium, so something had to be in the nothingness of space, according to that logic. They called that something ether, and with ether spiritualists had a scientifically legitimated physical medium with which to explain how communications with the dead could occur. Spiritualists began to accumulate and extrapolate a body of facts about the afterlife, and here is a typical description from the time. We are told that our planet is surrounded by concentric rings or circles of attenuated matter, invisible to our physical eyesight, extending from the surface of the globe to a considerable distance beyond the limits of the atmosphere. And the life of the inhabitants in this wonderful realm is very much like the life that we ourselves lead on Earth. I presented the story so far as spiritualism being derivative of ideas in science and technology, but the reality, as ever, was a bit more complex. Science informed spiritualism, but spiritualism informed science as well. I mentioned in episode 4 that historian John Durham Peters has argued that the idea of telepathy was one of the keys to the development of the radio. Other scholars, such as Anthony Enns and Stephan Andriopoulos, speak of notions of circular causality regarding relationships between occult and scientific knowledge. Andriopoulos, writing of The Development of Television, argues that while spiritualism serves as a necessary but not sufficient condition for the invention of electrical television, the emerging technology simultaneously fulfills the very same function for spiritualist research on psychic telecytes. Certainly, Victorian spiritualists were keen to link great discoveries of engineering to the revelations of spiritualism. If one aspect of this desire was expressed through the appropriation of the technology and methodologies of science, a second appropriation was that of the great men and women of science themselves. For example, publications in the 1880s and 90s would occasionally portray Thomas Edison as a spiritualist. In 1890, the two worlds printed one such example. It read, Some few years ago, Thomas A. Edison, the great medium and inventor, announced that he thought that he had discovered a way to telegraph across the Atlantic without a wire. Now the great medium inventor announces that he had been mysteriously informed, by spirits, of a new force compared to which all known forces sink in insignificance. That, by spirits bit, was the writer's own addition, in brackets, suggesting perhaps that a mysterious epiphany had to be the result of spirit influence, what else could it be? In the more sober historical record, Edison is not said to have been a spiritualist, or to have believed in spiritualism per se. Although he did hold some rather strange views on personality and consciousness... It's likely that the new force mentioned in the quote referred to Edison's idea of tiny units of intelligence within the brain. Edison would later describe these in 1920 as, the reason why you are you and I am Edison is because we have different swarms or groups or whatever you wish to call them or entities. He further announced that he was working on a sensitive apparatus with which to detect and record the myriad infinitesimal immortal monads prowling through the ether of space. All right, uh, good luck with that, Edison. Wherever you are? Okay, so I've said that the phonograph wasn't quite as relevant to spiritualism as the telegraph, telephone, and radio were. But at the same time, it was an astonishing new technology that preserved voices after death, and in both of those aspects, it was profoundly implicated in this discourse. With that in mind, let's return to one of our foundational texts in this podcast the article that first publicized news of the tinfoil phonograph to the British public in 1877. The writer wrote, If it is true that the telephone reproduces the inflections and tones of the human voice so exactly that a person familiar with them can recognize the speech of his friend, then it is no less true that it will be possible to hear those tones and those inflections a hundred or more years after the death of the speaker. At first sight such an announcement might seem impossible, but the latter word is unknown in the laboratory of the physicist. Telephones, phonographs, death, and the impossible were spoken of in the same breath, and a spiritualist subtext read that just as laboratory physicists were making the seemingly impossible possible, so too were mediums eliciting seemingly impossible connections with the souls of the departed. In spiritualism, the boundaries between life and death were becoming blurred, and phonography paralleled this in the sense that sounds were no longer necessarily ephemeral phenomena that lived and then died, but rather, instances of vibration that could be stored and repeated forever. By 1897, this idea of sound as infinite due to its vibratory nature had entered firmly into occultist language. As a quite odd home-published magazine from Manchester called The Psychic Mirror put it, a sound once made could never be hushed to absolute silence. As every sound is a vibration. And every vibration is a wave, so that each wave, wavelet or ripple, when passed beyond our auditory sphere, will there, then, and forever be within the hearing of beings above or beyond us. When vibratory pulsation ceases its throbbings within the domain of the atmosphere, it enters the realm of ether. For Victorian occultists, the vibratory nature of sound linked it to the fundamental universal medium, ether. Insofar as sound, and more broadly reality, was considered vibratory and etheric, so too was phonography. From that perspective, the borders between the organic and the mechanical were becoming increasingly blurred. The August 1892 edition of the Review of Reviews ran an article entitled, Wanted, a phonograph for thought. The article reviewed an article by an American electrician named Edwin J. Houston, which originally appeared in English Mechanic. Houston speculated that as the phonograph records speech, it was scientifically plausible that a machine could be invented to record thought. His reasoning was that as thought exists in brain molecules, and as brain molecules are obviously immersed in and interpenetrated by ether, then vibrations of thought should trigger vibrations in ether that would radiate from the brain outwards. As the camera records light, so too, according to Houston, should a thought machine be able to record etheric vibrations. The magical idea of telepathic thought transfer encouraged him, as an engineer, to investigate the technical possibilities for mechanically replicating what he saw as a spiritual reality. Know what I mean? Houston was not the first thinker to compare the mechanisms of the thinking brain with the mechanisms of phonography. Indeed, such comparisons arose almost immediately after the invention of the tinfoil phonograph. One of the first to do so was French philosopher and poet Jean-Marie Guillot, In 1880, he compared the way that a phonograph records sound to the way that the brain creates memories, and concluded that the brain is a conscious phonograph. By 1897, this idea of the brain as a thought phonograph seemed to one writer so obvious that he felt compelled to argue the opposite, writing that, The human mind is more than a machine, it is greater than Edison's phonograph. Certainly, the great mystery of death was, for many, the fundamental distinction between the human mind and machinery. However, it was a distinction that both new technologies and new spiritual ideas were beginning to collapse. I want to end this episode by broadening out our discussion to include another heavyweight term. That term is theosophy. In particular, I want to focus on the energy and efforts of a Russian-German woman born in Ukraine named Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. She was an incredibly influential woman who was very much involved in the spiritualist movement as an occultist and a medium. But at the same time, her thought reflects how diverse the movement actually was. For example, despite many of her ideas being fundamental to many branches of spiritualism, she didn't believe that the dead were contacting the living. That idea, remember, was meant to be the linchpin that held spiritualism together. She thought instead that the spirits being contacted were mischievous beings that existed between life and death. She had a different perspective on the phenomena that were occurring one that she connected, in books such as Isis Unveiled, to deeper and more ancient currents of hermetic and neoplatonic thought. In part due to her originality and depth of thought, her work continued to influence society long after the power of most spiritualist texts had waned. She's regarded as one of the most important influences on the New Age movements of the 1970s, for example. Her early biography has been scrutinized and debated, as she is thought to have invented more than a few personal details to achieve a sort of authenticity. But as it's a great yard, and as this is ultimately just a story, I'll recount a couple of the details as she shared them. She was born in 1831 to an aristocratic family in Ukraine, and in her youth, her family traveled widely throughout the Russian Empire. As a teenager, she became fascinated with esotericism, and she embarked on a self-motivated study of Hermetic, Neoplatonic, and Gnostic texts. Her life in her telling begins to get more interesting from 1849, where at the age of 18 she began to travel the world. She claims that during her travels through America, India, and Europe, she encountered a group of advanced spiritual beings, called the Masters of Ancient Wisdom, who sent her to Tibet and trained her to unlock and develop her psychical powers. Wasn't this the plot to Batman Begins? Hmm. Well, to me it does all sound a bit far-fetched, and though I must confess I haven't really looked into the details, I'm inclined to trust those who have, many of whom say that in reality she was just hanging out with rich kids in Europe. Yeah, it seems quite a lot more likely. But who knows? Maybe somehow in some way, she really was in Tibet, even if her body was in Europe. Anyhow, over the next 20 years, she became more and more involved and celebrated in the developing spiritualist movement. And while she had rather unique views on the nature of the phenomena, she never publicly doubted that the bizarre phenomena were indeed occurring. In 1873, she moved to the United States, where she continued her career as a spirit medium and occultist scholar. Two years later, along with Henry Steele Olcott and William Q. Judge, she co-founded the Theosophical Society in New York City, which she described as a synthesis of science, religion, and philosophy based upon the ancient wisdom that united all religion. Indeed, the organization Seal included, and I can't quite see this happening again, both the Star of David and the Swastika as well as Indian and ancient Egyptian symbols. Point one on their official agenda was to form a nucleus of the universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color. Well, such phrases are commonplace nowadays, but in its time, it was quite a radical statement. By 1880, Blavatsky and Olkit were living in India and had become the first Westerners to officially convert to Buddhism. It's a good claim to fame. Of course, they took the organization with them and tried to spread it throughout India, in collaboration with a Hindu reform organization as well. One of the purposes of the Theosophical Society was to prepare human consciousness for the coming of a world teacher, an advanced being that periodically manifested on earth to purify and help evolve the hearts and minds of mankind. In the movement's all-encompassing nature, past examples have included Buddha, Jesus, and Muhammad, and in 1909, Theosophist and clairvoyant Charles Ledbetter, originally from Manchester, thought he found the new world teacher in a fourteen-year-old boy he met on a beach near the Theosophical Society headquarters in Madras. That boy's name was Jiddu Krishnamurti, yes, that Jiddu Krishnamurti, who many of you may be familiar with from YouTube videos on subjects such as the self, love, and the revolution of consciousness. Jiddu was trained. Groomed, some might say, by members of the Theosophical Society such as Ledbetter, and especially Annie Besant, who would become Blavatsky's successor and a mother of sorts to Jiddu, both emotionally and legally. In 1911, the Society established the Order of the Star in the East to prepare the world for his future teachings. Well, Jiddu would eventually reject the title and withdraw from the Theosophical Society, but nonetheless would confess that they were his first teachers and that he would have died without them. And in the end, he really did become something of a world teacher, if not the world teacher. Well, fellow spirits, let's end this seance with the July 1892 edition of Lucifer, which was Blavatsky's London-based Theosophical magazine. We read inside that science is continually moving closer towards proving the truth of Blavatsky and Besant's ideas. One article concludes, as will we, with an extended quote by Annie Besant, suggesting that the sensory experiences of the world are all fundamentally etheric in nature. Alter your sense organs, and what is light might become sound. Fragrance might become visible. Um, Right, I think that's a good place to stop. In the next episode, we're going to begin speaking about some of the first famous voices to be heard after death, thanks to the phonograph. It should be a very nice discussion, so I hope you can join me for that. But for now, thank you and goodbye.